Take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 9, the whole chapter. Give you a moment for those electronic pages to flip, the ones I can't hear, as you turn your various passages. John chapter 9. This is the word of the Lord, written long ago, but written for you today. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back, seeing The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It's he. Others said, No, but he's like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud. And anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed and received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus had made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said he's a prophet. Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, 
give glory to God, we know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why, do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? They reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from. And yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him. You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Let's pray. Father, this is a glorious passage. And we ask that you would speak and we would hear. You have told us here in your word that you are the God of light. And we ask that you would give light to our darkened minds and our hardened hearts. Stir up our zeal within us that we might worship We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. There are no words that strike more fear in the heart of a parent. Okay, I'm being a bit melodramatic, but those words, Daddy, I have a question. You have young kids, you know that moment, that bit of panic of, oh no, What's going to come out next? I have no idea. It could be how heavy is the house. It could be what's wrong with the person that's standing next to me and I'm suddenly mortified and embarrassed. It could be something I have no clue. It make no sense. You have no idea what those questions are going to be next. And if you've been around young children enough, you know at one point you're going to have that moment of just terror when they ask the tragically socially awkward question, 
most often about the person standing right next to you. You know, Daddy, what's wrong with that man's face? Oh, no, I don't know how to answer this now. And the parents turn red and sweat and feel terrible. I love the disciples because they're so human. And they're so six-year-old boy. Following the feast, Jesus is passing by with his disciples. And they're looking at the beggars and the poor people and the people that are medically fragile and invalids and all the sort. And and you, you just have to love their question. Uh, Jesus, we have a question. That guy right there, whose fault is it that he's blind? I, I love that. Acting like the man is property, acting like he's part of you know, the backdrop to the story. He's part of this setting. He's, you know, if this was a play, he might actually be made out of paper. It's not like he's a, a real person of any kind. It's not like he has feelings. It's not like he could answer it himself. Instead, they go to Jesus with the six-year-old boy question and ask the tragically inappropriate and theologically suspect question. Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? And there's a kind of logic of sorts there, I guess, the same way that there's a logic in the child that asks you why rhinoceroses have to be big. I, I don't know, but they have to be big for a reason, okay. Here they're saying, well, obviously, this man is blind. Thank you. That is obvious. We've got that. And he's blind because someone sinned. And there's, I guess, a sense there of, well, if no one sinned, then blindness isn't here. You can't think of Adam and Eve being made blind at the very beginning. No, they're made with sight. They're wholesome and healthy. So we know that somewhere along the line, sin has entered in, and the result of it is this man is blind. And ultimately, I guess there's kind of three causes, really, that could potentially be there in some sort. Uh, There could be uh, the man could have sinned. The parents could have sinned, or someone else, I guess, could have sinned. And they hone in on the two most immediate and obvious answers. Is it the man's fault that somehow he was in the womb so evil, so malevolent as this embryo in the womb, this image bearer inside his mother's womb is so malevolent in there that God was like, no, this one must be born blind. He must be punished even in the womb because he's so evil. Or is it his mom's fault or his dad's fault? That mom and dad were so evil, so malevolent, so rotten to the core that God had to curse their child. And Jesus here displays all of the tenderness that we read about in chapter 42 of Isaiah. Rather than chiming in on their theological kind of pontification, which he could have easily done and said, actually, uh, yes, certainly he sinned and his parents have sinned, but the bigger issue is Adam. He he could have walked them through that. I mean, it's an important truth. It's in Romans. Federal headship's a big deal. But instead, he deals not just with them, but also with the man in the backdrop. The setting, so to speak, the, the person who's not even a person, he draws him into the conversation and illustrates through it all the beauty of the glory of Christ. 
He goes to showcase who he is, who God is in his simple and profound answer. It's not that this man sinned. He's not so evil in the womb that the Lord cursed him as punishment. It's not his parents. It's not fetal alcohol syndrome or something of the sort. Instead, no, this man is blind so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And we're all working together for a time. And as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And he kind of drops this bomb on them in the midst of this kind of simple and sweet answer. You'd have to think if you're the disciples walking along with them like, Jesus, we were just asking a question about the guy over there, man. I, I was just asking about the beggar. I wasn't asking about, you know, kind of you being Yahweh. You being I am the great God. I, I wasn't really kind of going that way. But okay, now that you want to, we're going to think about it. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And in this passage, he's going to illustrate a number of different ways in which he is light. And there's a reality that for most of us in here, this is not the kind of conversation that naturally resonates. I wasn't born blind. My only serious and lengthy interaction with any human that was blind was my grandfather. My grandfather lost one eye to a sawdust shaving when he was a child and all kinds of retina problems. The other one basically was blind all except for a spot about that big all of my life. That's all, my only exposure to blindness. As a kid trying to play mean and terrible pranks on him by running in circles around him and all kinds of hateful things. But for most of us, that's kind of the thing is blindness is this thing that's kind of far off and far away. And you know, as you've joined the church, my question I ask everybody is, who is Jesus? And it's interesting, no one ever answers, he's my light. Because none of us really think of ourselves as blinded. But it's interesting how Christ is the light in the passage. Kind of five things that we're going to see. There's many more, but we're only going to look at a handful of them in the short time that we have left. What is it that Christ illumines? Well, he starts it off with the initial answer. Jesus answers verse 3, it's not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. First and foremost, what is Christ illumining? What is he the, the light of? What is he displaying? What is he showing off? The works of God. And that's an important thing to understand that part of the very mission of what Jesus does on this planet inside creation is to make sense of it all. To make sense of the works of God. I mean, it's it's interesting, it's what he does. And to think about, for those of you that were converted later in life, you recognize this is part of your story. You recognized at some point in your life that I can look around me and understand so many things in my world, but they don't ultimately make sense. There's no unifying theory that holds them all together. I can look around and see a mother's love for a child and think, wow, that is wonderful and good. And I can see the hateful things that happen on the news and think, wow, that is bad. And I don't understand the extreme disparity of those two things. 
And I can look around at a world that is so intricate and complex, uh, uh, scientific you know, understanding of the world is so unbelievably complicated. And to think that part of what Christ is illumining, part of what he's illustrating is to take all of these various things in creation and unifying them into one guiding principle to show what God has done. He's, even in his presence, showing what do the clouds mean. Why are rhinoceroses as heavy? Why are dinosaurs dead right now? All of these things, they're all unified and displaying the glory of God in his works. And Christ is the guiding principle that knits that together. We understand the works of God because Christ has shown them to be true. You think about it, that Isaiah 42 passage that we read earlier, it's a lengthy passage and I don't normally read chapters quite that lengthy, but it's a good one. And you think about how many of you, as you read that, you think, okay, uh, uh, you know, the bruised reed, he will not break. Oh, maybe you've read the Puritan book on bruised reed. Richard Sibbs is fantastic. Okay, it's talking about Jesus. I understand that. Or it's talking about the Lord rising up and defending his people and being that judge that's going to come. And you think about how you read that makes so much sense because of Christ. From the very beginning to the very end, it makes sense because of Christ. He is illumining the glory of God. But that's a fantastic point. But that's not actually where the story almost even seems to start, really. It's certainly not where it stops. Jesus introduces this. I'm the light of the world. I'm going to display for you. I'm going to illustrate for you the glory of the works of God. And then he says to the guy, come here. (laughs) Come here. Everything's about to be different. You want to see what the glory of the works of God are. He spits on the ground, makes mud, puts it on the guy's eyes and tells him to go and wash. The man goes, washes, comes back. And I love how verse 7 is worded. So he went, he washed, he came back. Oh, by the way, he was also seeing when he came back. And we have to kind of, for a little bit, ponder what that healing actually looks like. And I love to think about the complexity of the miracles that God accomplishes. It's not simply like the human body is made where eyeballs have a switch that are kind of like the switches in the back of the room, off or on. Oh no, this man was born with his eyeball switch off. He couldn't see. And all Jesus had to do was magically and miraculously flip his little eyeball switch on and suddenly everything's bright and the man can understand everything. No. I mean, just from the little bit of neuroscience that we understand as a culture, the, the mind is so unbelievably complicated. To think about What he actually had to heal is not just the physical kind of operations taking place in the eyes, but all of the complexities of the human brain. I love thinking about that when Jesus heals the people who've never walked, they've been lame from birth. And they go skipping around, jumping for joy. And like, we're not lambs. We don't come out, you know, kind of skipping and jumping and happy. It takes us years to figure out how to walk without bashing our face into things. And miraculously, the Lord does it in a moment. 
It takes children years to kind of figure out their depth perception and to figure out how to hone their vision enough to understand the world around them. And Jesus miraculously does it in a moment. You see, he illumines the works of God so they see God's might and God's power, but he's also in the business of illumining a man physically. Here's a man who is of age, he's at least 13, but has spent his entirety of his existence in darkness, unable to see anything, never having known color. I love the, the interaction that takes place at the end of the chapter where Jesus asks him about the son of the man, the son of man, and the guy's like, well, I, don't, I don't know who he is. He's never seen Jesus. He doesn't even know what he looks like. He doesn't know he's talking to Jesus. He doesn't know he's talking to the guy. He's he he never seen anything. He's lived in a world of darkness. A world that has never been displayed before him. And we forget all of the emotional trauma and turmoil that would come with that. I mean, think about it. What is the one thing, besides public speaking, that every human ever is afraid of? The dark. We don't do dark well. This is not kind of how we're wired. We don't do it well. If you've been listening to any of the radio stations in Charlotte, I I didn't know this was apparently a huge enough problem to have it play on the radio stations, but the commercials that have been playing recently about if you have problems sleeping at night, it's not because you're an insomniac or whatever. It's because you're blind and your circadian rhythms don't know how to work. This new drug trial will help you with such a blah, blah, blah. Again, to think just the darkness itself it hinders sleep. It, it's so complicatedly oppressive for what it does to the human mind and the human body. If you've ever watched any of the documentaries or done any reading about the people who go and stay at like the poles, you know, the South Pole throughout the winter, it's crazy. They, they lose their mind from the darkness. Um, one of the things that they've documented for the folks that live in the darkness on the South Pole is they lose their short-term memory. So, like, you know how most of us have that moment, and if you're a little bit you know, grayer than I am, you might have it more than I do, but where you walk into a room and you're like, I don't know why I came in here. Or you go to the pantry and you're like, I know I'm hungry, but I don't know what I came for. Uh, they have that all of the time permanently at the South Pole when it's dark. And it's crazy because you can see their workstations. There's post-it notes everywhere because they can't retain anything. They will literally sit down to do their job and not know what they're doing. They have to have post-it notes with their passwords because they can't remember passwords because their, their short-term is just gone. The darkness is oppressive. It's altering. It's mind-changing. And here Christ is, in a moment, restoring a man. And all of the complexity and beauty and difficulty that is involved in that. And how wonderful that had to have been. I mean, can you imagine that? He knows his way to the pool because he's you know, obviously been there. He's been living there all his life. He's blind. He knows how to count his steps. Probably didn't count his steps coming back. To be able to see everything for the first time, to see the people around you. If you see any of the videos that happen around now where they've you know, replaced like the you know, retinas in place, you know, replacements or whatever for children who see their parents for the first time. I mean, think about it. He gets to see his parents for the first time ever in his whole life. And this is the positive side of it. 
This is kind of those moments of illumination that Christ does where it's like if you were camping, you maybe have done this when you were a child, you went camping with your parents and you pulled up in the car after dark or you arrived at the campsite after dark and so you didn't know what anything looked like and you, you go into the tent and you go to bed and when you wake up and you pop out of the tent in the morning, it's this gigantic, just gorgeous overlook. You're like, wow, where do the mountains come from? But you hadn't seen them because it's dark. That's the positive side of what Jesus is illuminating, the positive side of him giving light. We get to see the beauty and the the wonder, the grandeur, the majesty of God. But it's not all sunshine, puppies, roses, and rainbows. And he shows more than that as well as he displays in his illumining power here. He brings light to the devious and twisted hearts of men and women. The man comes back. (laughs) <laughs> I, I love this story. I love it. The neighbors are like, um, is that the guy? And they're like, no, it's not the guy. It's not the guy. That guy can see. It's not that guy. He can see. And so he's like, I, no, I think it is the guy. I think he can see. Probably he got cleaned up. I mean, can you imagine shaving, actually being able to see what you're shaving? He probably looked a little different. Combed his hair. Nobody told him that it was, you know, spiky and big or whatever. <laughs> and they ask him, you know, how, how are you able to see? And the answer in verse 11 is so beautiful and succinct and clear. Jesus told me to, Jesus made mud, anointed my eyes, and told me to wash. So I went, I washed, and I see. I went, I washed, and I see. Where is he? I don't know. I don't even know what he looks like. He could have been standing right next to me. He has no idea. All he would recognize, maybe the voice. And that right there is enough to get the man in trouble. And this is shocking that all he has to do is literally recount what happened to him in his restoration. And that's enough to get him in trouble. And the Pharisees bring him in, verse 13, they brought him to the Pharisees. And that's not just like, oh, they brought him to the Pharisees. This has got the ominous music playing in the background. They brought him to the Pharisees. And oh, by the way, verse 14, it was the Sabbath day when Jesus did that. It's going to become important. And so the Pharisees ask the man, how is it that you can see? And you can kind of get the impression this is going to feel a little bit like a courtroom drama. Suddenly, we've gone from illumination and beauty and mountaintops and wonderful things. I'm in the middle of CSI or some dateline or something terrible, and I don't like it anymore. How is it that you can see? And he's like, he put mud on my eyes. I washed and I see. It's, It's pretty simple. And the Pharisees display just perfectly the reaction of the human heart. Verse 16. This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Never mind the fact that he just miraculously healed a guy's eyes and a guy's brain. Never mind that he just miraculously did this unbelievably kind and compassionate deed to a man on the Sabbath day. Never mind the fact that the guy is literally standing right in front of them saying, I see now! They say, well, obviously, he can't be from God. Obviously. Why? Well, because he doesn't keep the Sabbath the way that we understand the Sabbath to be. Now, the reality of the matter is their take on the Sabbath is not the way the Scriptures have a take on the Sabbath. The scriptures say the Sabbath is important. The Lord's Day is important. It's one of the ten biggies kind of importance. It's a reflection of the character of God. It, it shows something about who God is that one day out of every seven is devoted to Him. 
But it's a day for rest and worship and a day for deeds of mercy and kindness. And here Christ has healed a man on this day and they're freaking out and not in the good way. How is a man who's a sinner able to do such things? And look at what they're presupposing. They're presupposing he's broken the Sabbath. They're presupposing that he's a sinner. They're presupposing all of these evil things about Jesus and displaying the frailty and the filth and the rottenness of the human soul. That with a miracle held right before them, a living, breathing, talking testifying miracle right before them, they still reject. In fact, actually, they go further. (laughs) I love this, verse 18. They go so far as to say, this guy couldn't have been blind. That's what it is. We know we've got it figured out. He actually wasn't blind. Go find his parents. Where's mom and dad? At this point, you have to kind of laugh at the irony of who is actually blind. It's not the man, it's the Pharisees. They can't see the things staring them in the face, a miracle done in their very midst, and they just can't see it. So they go and get mom and dad. And mom and dad come in, and you can see they're kind of scared. They're a little kind of, and they ask him, and they're like, man, that's our son, and we know he can see, but I don't know how. You've got to ask him. That is called passing the buck. We don't want any trouble. We don't want any trouble. Just talk to him. We don't want any trouble. And so they push it back on their son. Yay, heroic mom and dad right there. And so for the second time, verse 24, they go back at him. Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. That is right there, my friends, a trap. Give glory to God by agreeing with us in our blindness. Come poke your eyes out and join us again. Give glory to God by being on our side. We know that Jesus is a sinner. And this is where you see a a tremendous kind of turning point take place in the story. Because the Pharisees who are displaying true spiritual blindness now encounter true spiritual sight. A man who was at the beginning of the story considered part of the backdrop. Almost part of the property. A, A man who's not worth our time. The disciples don't even acknowledge him really. Now he goes on the offensive with the most really terrifying group of the Jews right in front of them. The best defense is a good offense, and so he goes right at them, displaying all of the beauty of a soul that has been spiritually illumined. Whether you're a sinner or not, I don't know. I'm not answering your theological question. I'm not getting trapped in your actual little trap for me there. One thing I do know, I was blind, now I see. There is one thing you Pharisees cannot argue with, and it is my personal experience and transformation, for it is right in front of you. I was this, I am this. Those things cannot be contested. I was that, and I am this. 26, they go back to him. (laughs) Well, how did he do it? How did he heal you? 27, again, best defense is a good offense. I've told you already. And you wouldn't listen then. Do you want to become his disciples too? I love that question. I love that. That had to have been unbelievably galling for them. as he's, He's calling to their very attention the difference, the distance between the two. 
He's simply submitting to the man who has healed him. He's just acknowledging what Christ has done. And they are burying their their head in the sand as quickly and as deeply and as fastly as possible. And they continue in on the story. You are his disciple. We're disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. And they kind of really, I guess, get angry enough that they kind of stick, they leave the loophole. They make a mistake. They leave an opening and saying, well, we don't even know where he comes from. And the guy, I've got you. Verse 30, this is an amazing thing. And he's saying this, I'm sure, with delight and a tremendous twinkle in his eye. You do not know where he comes from. In fact, you Pharisees are actually the ones in the dark. You're the ones who are blind because you don't even know the answer. You don't know where he comes from. You don't know who this guy actually is. But yet he opened my eyes. And we know, verse 31 and following, ultimately, that if things like this were happening, verse 33, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. You yourself, Pharisees, admit you don't know where he comes from, but I can tell you right now, I know exactly where he comes from. He comes from God. Because otherwise, he couldn't do what he's doing. This is a man who's been transformed spiritually as he goes toe-to-toe with the Pharisees, the scariest people in the land. And think again, how much education does this man most likely have? Goose egg. He's not been taught rhetoric. He doesn't know how to argue. He hasn't had a chance to read Quintilian's multi-volume thing on it. He has no idea what he's doing. He's just testifying, I was blind, now I see, and now you've made a mistake and let me point it out. You see, it's displaying in this gigantic disparity the difference between darkness and light spiritually what christ accomplishes in the heart of a believer with that regenerating transformation that takes place is it doesn't mean that they have all the answers the man is abundantly and saying i don't know i don't know i don't know i don't know but here's what i do know being christian doesn't mean we have all of the answers i love that that's so freeing i actually had to say that morning sunday school i don't know the answer to your question i might be able to look it up and find it i might not but there are certain things that I do know. And I know them personally, I know them really, I know them intimately, and I know them completely. That God has transformed my life. And you know the same story. I love that it doesn't just stop there. Here's a guy that has been brought from darkness into life, and that right there is enough of a transformation to last a lifetime. But you'd have to think, the guy would have to kind of... Think about, the, I guess, the morning after waking up. Like, I can see! What do I do now? I don't know any skills. I have no marketable trade. I've been a bum all of my life because I couldn't see. What do I do now? And Jesus here shows up and illumines one last thing, kind of just very quickly in this brief conversation, illumines the purpose of humanity. He gives meaning to a man's life by illumining to him, what are you supposed to do with your days? Jesus finds out he's been thrown out of the synagogue, tracks him down, starts off with, do you believe in the Son of Man? Loaded term, Messiah. Do you believe that God has sent the Messiah, sent the Christ? And the man answers, uh, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? 
I love that answer. I, I, I am so ready to believe in what God has done. I just need to know where. I just need to know what the truth is because I know God's done it. He's seen it. He can literally see the truth. And Christ professes his nature right before him. It is he who is speaking to you. Jesus is saying, look, it's, it, Jesus is this one. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is the Son of Man. He is the divine Redeemer. He is the only hope for men and women, boys and girls. And the man's response is sweet and simple. I believe. Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And Jesus there in that brief moment reorients all of his life, all of his existence is now shaped around Christ. It's not just that we've been given this ability to see for seeing's sake. Sight is only as good as you use it for. Your gifts are designed for a purpose, a purpose to lead you to Christ and to Christ alone. Christ has illumined for the disciples in this passage and for us the glory of God. He's illumined a man physically that he might see. He's illumined the sinful heart of man. He's illumined what Christian and righteous spirituality looks like. He's illumined the purpose of mankind to worship and believe in the Lord. And the Pharisees ask a closing question that I, I think, honestly, if we were going to be real, would be the question that most of, most of us would be actually asking. Remembering the Pharisees are the good guys, so to speak. They're the ones that look good, they act good, they would vote on the right side of the ticket for the right presidential person, they would be good neighbors, their yard would be mostly trimmed most of the time, they would be the good moral people, and they kind of chime in these ones and say, are Are we also blind? These group right here, these ones, these some, have finally gotten to the heart of the issue. This entire object lesson has been a lesson in blindness and sight. And Christ has said, those around me, transformed by me, can see. And everyone else is blind. And they chime in and say, are we also, are we the ones, are we... Are we the broken ones? Who, who are we? What are we? And Jesus damns them. He pronounces judgment upon them. If you were blind, you would have no guilt. If you didn't understand, if you, if you didn't see, you would come to me and you would be fine. But rather instead, you trust in your own abilities. You're trusting in your own works. You're trusting in your own understandings. And instead now you say, we see just fine and your guilt remains. And it's in that last bit that I would say we see the biggest and clearest challenge for us today. We live in a nation that supposedly has a Judeo-Christian ethic connected to it. We live in a part of the culture that, or part of the country that is filled with churches. We live in a part of the culture that Christianity is, is part of the kind of essence of our culture. And yet we live in a culture that's blind. And the temptation is for us certainly to be like those Pharisees and to think so much that we've, we've got it figured out that we might miss the point. And I would encourage us all 
to in humility and honesty be those people to, to ask that honestly of ourselves. Am I one of those people, Lord Jesus, that has missed the point? Have I I've been so filled with my own thoughts and my own works and my own deeds and my own self and stuff and person that I've missed the point? And for those of us that know we are members of the Lord Jesus, we know our union with Him, we know His redeeming work. I might challenge you just really simply again to go back to this man's message. To contemplate, I think, one of the most elegant and sophisticated, uneducated men testifying to the reality of Jesus. Notice he doesn't initially embark in top-shelf theology. He doesn't break out any fancy arguments for God. Look, here's the thing. I don't know all the answers. I do know I was blind and I have been transformed. You need to have that message with your children. Have that conversation. Tell them your story. To your neighbors, to your friends, to your family, that we might be a part of a generation, even in this country, proclaiming the light that is found in and through Christ alone. Let's pray. Father in heaven, forgive us for our sins, for they are many. Forgive us for though we have been made to see many of us, we so often return to the ways of darkness. Forgive us for Christ's sake, the Lord of life, the Lord of light, in whose name we pray. Amen.